The reading today is from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 to 11. That should be page 1188 of the Church Bibles. Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them, and suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Dear Lord, just as by the Holy Spirit you inspired Paul to write this letter, I pray that by that same Holy Spirit you will open our hearts and minds to hear what you are saying through it to us today. Amen. Um, I went to watch a nativity play the other day, uh, Monday, it was actually, and uh, it was um, pre-reception children, that's sort of three-year-olds, including my grandson, and it was great fun. I I liked it a lot. One of the things that I particularly liked about it was that uh, there were no weird additions to the story, like you get, you know. There was no Father Christmas great crashing nativity, no elves, no aliens, if you ever watch Love Actually, no lobsters. Um, um, but one thing uh, else that caught my attention was a young girl with a really clear voice who would come on at intervals during the play and say, is that the end of the story? It seems like we're surrounded by people who think the birth of Jesus is the end of the story. But I guess you know that it's not. Um, and you'd be missing what he came for if that's what you thought that he lived this amazing, incredible life like no other. And then he gave his life for us so that we might be forgiven. He died that we might live. But then gloriously raised to life to show the truth of it. But still, that is not the end of the story. In fact, we are still in the story. We're waiting as those Christians in Thessalonica did back in Paul's day for the second advent when Jesus will return. So as we think uh, about the approach of Christmas, we are in some ways like the people of old who looked for and waited for that first advent, the coming of the Messiah. Only now, of course, we await for his return. So when Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Thessalonica he's writing to a people who are like us who are waiting waiting 
for Christ's return. And in this section uh, of the letter, which we've had over two Sundays, uh, 4.13 to 5.11, Paul is addressing two questions about the second advent, about the coming of Christ. Are these questions of ones that have been troubling the church there about the day of the Lord as they await for it? First question, what happens to those who have died? That is, our loved ones. If Jesus has not yet come, then where will they fit in when he returns? Second question, when Jesus returns in his glory as the judge of all people, will we be ready? How do we know whether we are? It's rather a frightening uh, prospect uh, him coming as a judge of all people. Well, I think these questions are questions that many people ask themselves today, although maybe in different forms. So they are every bit as relevant um, now as they were when Paul wrote them, the letter. Bereavement is tough, not only because of the loss of the loved one and thinking about what has become of them now, but because it makes you think, makes us think, of our own mortality. Where do we stand? So last Sunday Mike spoke about the first of those questions. Today we continue with the passage and we're looking at the second of those questions. Will we be ready? Now I hope you know that uh, and see that this is not some sort of theoretical question, is it? Humanly speaking, it's maybe a very reasonable question to be asking ourselves if we are Christians, but maybe even if we're not, since we know that life will come to an end one way or another. So how will we stand then when it is the end of the story? So I want you to imagine just for a moment uh, if Jesus appeared right now, right here, would you be ready? So this brings me to my first point, which should appear on the screen behind me. There you go. Judgment, the wrong solution. And uh, this is uh, containing verse 1 to 3, and I will just read those to you. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Well, the first thing I, I ask myself is why Paul mentions something he says he doesn't need to write about. Well, he does because they seem to have decided on the wrong solution to the question of them being anxious about judgment. They rationalise if, <clears throat> if they could know when Jesus is coming, uh, coming back, then that would enable them to be ready. I guess it's logical in a way, but it's rather naive in another. So Paul is saying they should not need to go over this again because he has already explained to them that that cannot be the solution. But then sometimes we do need to go over things again, don't we? To remind ourselves again of the truths. They should already know, uh, as so should we, 
that nobody does or will know the date and the time. Maybe Paul would have quoted Jesus to them from Mark 13, verse 32. But about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. So surely that ends the argument about knowing when he's coming. In my opinion, uh, that uh, if we were to know when he would return, that would be of no help to us at all. But I'm not going to pursue that. Instead, we're going to look at the two metaphors that uh, direct our thinking here, that Paul uses. First metaphor, he uses that he will come as a thief in the night. Second one is, he will come as a labour pains for a pregnant woman. Now, thieves don't give you any warning, do they, about coming? They don't send you a text we're coming at six o'clock tonight to take some of your stuff, if that's okay with you. They don't do that. And their very aim, in fact, is to come suddenly when you don't expect them. So it will be with Jesus, says Paul. Peace and safety. People will be imagining that uh, they are entirely secure from being faced with a day of reckoning. But then suddenly, the day will come and there will be no escaping that day. So this metaphor of the thief in the night tells us a couple of things. It tells us that when Jesus comes it will be a surprise, but it also tells us that you won't expect it. It will be unexpected. Of course, those two things are not necessarily the same thing. Things can still be a surprise even when you expect them. For example, you're watching a thriller on the television and... Uh, and there's some character or other, he, he goes into the room looking for the bad guy. And uh, the, the, uh, goes into the house, sorry. And he's looking for the bad guy, and, and the house is in semi-darkness. He won't switch on the light, because that will ruin the whole effect. And uh, it's got this sort of spooky music. And you just know someone's going to jump out on him. But um, when it does, it still makes you jump out of your seat. So... That's the first metaphor. Second metaphor, however, is very different, isn't it? As labour pains on a pregnant woman, verse 3. I can still remember when my wife uh, had the labour pains. It came as a surprise. But it wasn't unexpected. We knew it was going to happen. So what Paul has done here is he has said it was going to be a surprise. You won't know when it will come. But he has also introduced the idea that some, to some people it will be expected and to others it will be unexpected. So hold that thought because that will help when we look at what he next says. So this is my second point. Um, the right solution, staying alert. Alert, sorry. Verses 4 to 8. But you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope 
of salvation as a helmet. So Paul, he continues his argument, but now uses the metaphor of the thief in the night to illustrate how we would know that we will be ready or not. It's a different use of the metaphor. So let's work out what this means for us. There are three reasons why the thief will take you by surprise, and maybe more importantly, will catch you unprepared. First, he comes at night, so he wants it to be dark, so you're less likely to see him. Secondly, it comes at night because that's when you're most likely to be asleep. Thirdly, if you're not asleep, maybe you're out partying and you could be drunk. Still works for him. So that is what you don't want to be. You don't want him to come at night. You want him to come in the daytime, in the light. You want to be awake. You want to be alert and sober. Well, okay, you say, well, how does that help answer the question? Well, he's drawing a a parallel with how we stand with Jesus Christ in a spiritual sense. So let's look at this another way. Will Jesus come in the day or in the night? Well, the answer, interestingly, is both. For some, it will be as they are in darkness or in the night. For others, in the day. Unbelievers live in darkness. They belong to the night because they live in the night. They are asleep. They have no conscience, conscious, sorry, or are not conscious of the, re- of the reality of Jesus. But they will be when he returns. It will take them entirely by surprise. But Paul is reminding those who have put their faith and trust in him of what they are in verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that the day should surprise you like a thief. He goes on in verse 5 to tell them they are children of the light and of the day. And then in verse 8, that they belong to the day, not the night. So let me explain this a little bit further. The Bible teaches us, speaks of there being two ages. What it calls the present age, which is like from the Old Testament, um, and then the age to come, when Jesus uh, is born. The present age is like a, dark, a long dark night. But when the Messiah came, the sun would rise like daybreak. The light would flood in. Jesus coming into the world on the first Christmas brought in the age to come. So let me quote you some pieces of scripture. So this is Isaiah 9 um, prophesying about the birth of Jesus. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. And then in Luke 1, Zechariah picks that up as he now prophesies over his child just born who would be John the Baptist. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. And then Peter, 1 Peter, talking to Christians But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. But the old age has not yet come to an end. It sort of overlaps with the age to come. So some are in darkness and some are in the light. Only when Christ returns will that transition period end and the old age vanish. So whether you're ready or not then depends upon which age you belong to. Whether you are still in darkness or now in light. So what Paul does is to urge us to behave as those who belong to the day. He says in verse 6 we should be alert. Verse 8, self-controlled and to arm ourselves. Well alert, I've always wondered about that myself, but it doesn't mean that you sit bolt upright every night in case Jesus returns. It means that we are to stay as those who trust in Jesus. Stay being those who belong to the day. We are to arm ourselves, it says in verse 8. But note what it is that we are arming ourselves with. It is with faith and with love and the hope of salvation. The Bible teaches that there is a power, Satan, who wants anything but that you and I put our trust in Jesus and know his salvation. And I read this little piece recently um, in uh, Tim Keller's book, Encounters. And he's talking about Satan. In, sa- in general, Satan doesn't control us with fang marks in the flesh, but with lies in the heart. We see this in the Garden of Eden account, where Satan, Satan tempts Adam and Eve. He doesn't come in with all sorts of special effects. He suggests ideas to the heart that contradict God's word, impugn his character, and destroy the trust relationship we have with him. The same should be true with us. Our best defense in the fight against the influence of Satan's lies is generally not the production of incantations, but the rehearsal of truth. So let's lay hold of truth. The truth that Christ came into the world as promised. He died and became our means of forgiveness and salvation as promised. Was raised from from the death as promised. And he will return as promised. So that brings me to my third point. It's the foundations of Christian hope. Verses 9 to 10. So Paul now sets out the the basis for the faith and hope that we should have. So if some were anxious, afraid about the day of the Lord because it meant judgment, how could they be confident that it would bring them salvation instead? He is saying two things here. Verse 9, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation. Notice that God has appointed them, us, who trust in him, not to be subject to wrath, not to face judgment. 
The reason why Jesus came in the first place is God's idea. It's his plan and his purpose that we should be saved. It is by his appointment. Second to this is verse 9, that that is through our Lord Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice. His death and our life are deliberately and inseparably connected. They were worried about whether or not they would be ready. But you may ask yourselves exactly what they thought they could do that would make them ready. If they know with the date, are they going to be on their best behaviour the week before? Surely they and we have learned that we cannot do anything to save ourselves. The only thing we can contribute to our salvation is our sin. No, our future salvation depends on God's purposes. Our future life upon Christ's death. Our hope of salvation then is well-founded. It's not on our performance or on our feelings, but on God's plan, made possible through Christ's death. So all we need to do is to trust in him with faith, love and hope of salvation, to live with that hope. So, to conclude, they need not be anxious about Christ's return. For the one who comes as judge is the very same Jesus who gave his life for them and for you and for me. To the end of that, verse 10, we may live together with him. Now that is a glorious thought, isn't it? This is no vague hope to think about when you're nearing death, but a faith that should transform our lives. For now everything else is seen in the light of it. The difficult things that we may now face are only temporary. For his purpose is that we should live with him forever. But as I finish, notice how Paul ends the whole passage in verse 11. God means us to be a community of mutual support. The world can be tough. It's unfriendly. It's easy to get hurt by it. As the questions that the Thessalonians asked bring out, bereavement can be very painful. And we are prone to fear judgment, prone to become dispirited, depressed even. So we are to be a people who show sympathy, friendship, kindness and love to one another. Sharing the truth of God's word and his promise to encourage and build each other up. Christ is coming, yes, but the Christ who is coming is the very same Christ who died and rose again for us in order that we might live with him. The coming king is none other than the crucified and risen saviour. So then neither death nor bereavement nor judgment can separate us from him who died to bring himself, bring us to himself. So therefore carry, comfort and encourage one another. Build one another up with these words. Amen. And we're going to take the opportunity to answer 
Uh, some questions that have come up. Um, at the start of the song, Andrew went to take his mic off and remembered <laughs> we've got the Q&A. Uh, I mean, you don't get out of it lightly of not answering your questions this week, but we've also got last week's ones to throw at you as well. Um, but I won't be that harsh and give you those ones. Mike's not here, I don't think, um, to answer those. Um, but we'll have a look at some of them. And in fact, um, there aren't any new questions this week. So obviously, Andrew, you did a good job explaining everything in the passage. Um, so let's look at some from last week. Um, here's the first one, and we'll kind of we'll answer them together, not to put it all on you on a passage that you didn't look at as closely as you looked at this week. Um, let me go to one first to you then. Um, as we know those in Christ are in a better place when they die, does that make it wrong to grieve loved ones we lose who are Christians? Um, no, no, it doesn't, um, because um, grieving is, is sort of a natural process anyway. I mean, if you've lost a loved one, you're going to miss them, aren't you? Mm. Um, and uh, for the time that uh, you have left in, on this earth until you meet them again. So that's very natural that you should grieve. And uh, in fact, you know, you shouldn't avoid doing that really because mm. it's a natural process to help you come to terms with it. Yeah, but you grieve not as those who have no faith, as mm. Paul puts it. Exactly, and I think that's the contrast Paul brings out in the passage last week. Grieve, but don't grieve like those who have no hope. And so we grieve with hope. And, and those two can feel like opposites almost, um, but that's the wonderful reality for the Christian. Do grieve, but we grieve with hope. Um, and, and we see the perfect human being, the most perfect human being that's ever lived, Jesus Christ, give us that example. In John 11, he loses one of his best friends, Lazarus, who dies. And Jesus grieves. He, he weeps we're told, at the tomb of Lazarus because he is so sad to lose his best friend and yet he has hope and Lazarus rises again and so you see that grief with hope. Um, Looking into the passage, uh, verse 16 from last week's passage, end of chapter 4, here's the question. Verse 16 highlights that the dead will rise first suggesting that the dead don't go to heaven until the second coming. Yet in Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus says, Today, to the person, the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, it's a great question and picks up on a really tricky point in Scripture of the, the kind of contrast or it seem contradiction that um, this, the 1 Thessalonians 4 passage brings out. And you see the reality in Scripture that that the Bible does point forward to a future judgment day when Jesus will return and all who, all who are living plus those who have passed away will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account. And yet you see, balanced with that, as the question rightly raises, that Jesus turns to the thief on the cross and says, today you will be with me in paradise. And so maybe you can help me out here, but I, I don't know how to explain that, but to see the truths of Scripture held hand in hand in balance, to say there will be a future day when Jesus will return and judge every human being, whether living or passed away. And yet for the Christian, the moment we pass away, today you will be with Christ in paradise. It's, it's a wonderful assurance and hope for the Christian. Um, and so how that works, when that works, what that looks like, I'm not sure Scripture shows us clearly. 
And yet there is this sure and certain hope for the Christian that today you will be with me in paradise. Mm. Anything you'd like to add? Yeah, to that, uh, yeah. I don't know whether this is helpful. So this is how my mind has worked it out, if you like. Um, so yeah, if it doesn't help, then forget it. But uh, the, <laughs> the idea is that God is outside of time. And mm. uh, so we're in time. So we tend to see everything in time. So we think, you know, if, um, like my dad died years ago, so that's going to be like years before we meet in heaven. But you could say, well, if he's gone to be with God, which is outside time, then the, the two things are the same. There isn't no waiting. Um, so I don't know if that helps you. But if you want to find out more about trying to get your heads around God being outside of time, <laughs> us being in time, come and speak to Andrew more about that one. Um, Last question. Uh, we put a timer on the Q&A because I go on too long in the Q&A. Um, so one question left, if that's all right, uh, to finish with, because I think it's a really important question. One person asked, how can I know that I will rise and don't need to fear the final judgment? It's, it can be a, a worry for people. How do I know that on that final day I will be okay? And so, and I'll come to you in a sec because you talked sure. about this in the passage. Sure. There's a sense of, I almost want to turn around and go, do you trust in Jesus Christ for your forgiveness of sins? If you say yes, you do not need to fear that final judgment. Because the Bible is clear, if you trust in Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation on you. And so trust in Jesus Christ, all that he has done for you, and there is the assurance that you need not fear that final judgment and you will rise again. Andrew, do you want to have the final word on that? Yeah, so I, I hope that maybe you're looking at the passage today would have helped you to, uh, to see that, yeah, that's what it is. It's to trust in Christ. And, uh, and in, in so doing, yeah, and then you are, uh, have come into the light, you know, mm. longer in darkness. And uh, so it, it is to remain in that, to, to remain trusting in him, to stand in, in that. I mean, the big temptation is to, uh, is to somehow think you've got to do more. Somehow it's something you've got to do. But we trust in Christ and what he has done and rest in that. Yep. Exactly, and it's a wonderful thing that it's not down to me, mm. but it's all down to what Christ has done for yeah. us.